everyone. Welcome to another episode of Behind the MD. Um, this episode is super exciting. We're going to be doing um, a series called Highlighting Excellence. And our first excellent guest is here with us is Dr. Jonah Saint. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and just hand it over to her. Just go ahead and just introduce yourself. Well, good evening or afternoon or whenever you all are listening. Um, it's great to be here. Wonderful to be here with my Black female colleagues. Um, I'm Nadia Jonasam, actually a hepatologist, a transplant hepatologist at the University of Pittsburgh, um, Clevelander um, by birth, uh, so go Midwest. And just a little okay. bit about myself, kind of grew up one of three daughters of two immigrant parents. My parents are actually Jamaican. My okay. last one kind of throws people off because it's Haitian. My husband's Haitian Guyanese by um, ethnicity. Kind of, you know, just, just here, kind of living the dream with you all actively um, this evening. So you know, went through training. Just my background is I went to Hopkins, I left Cleveland, went to Hopkins for undergrad, went to Johns Hopkins for undergrad, left there, uh, took a year off, worked at Case Western Reserve in a lab. And then I went to Yale for medical school, um, left Yale for medical school and went back to Johns Hopkins for a very long period of time. I was always tell people I was PGY9 when I left there. So I did internal medicine there, chief residency there. I went to the Bloomberg School of Public Health, I was a T32 fellow there in GI, and then I did transplant hepatology there. And then I left there and came to University of Pittsburgh, and I've been at the University of Pittsburgh for eight years. And here, like I said, I'm a transplant hepatologist, I'm an associate professor, and I am also the vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Department of Medicine, um, and also the um, associate dean of clinical affairs in the School of Medicine. So I'm just happy to be hanging out with you guys this evening. That's wow. Wow. <laughs> talking about excellence. <laughs> like, Can I be like you when I grow up? <laughs> like, I just be trying to make it through the day. <laughs> you know something? That continues, girl. Just try to keep on making it through the day. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. So the grass is greener? <laughs> it is. It is a little bit better when you have control over your time, right? And that's what we're all kind of looking for, right? That kind of balance between doing the thing, waking up and doing the thing we love every single day. And I think I was just talking to Katrina about this, this idea that it's worth it, right? It is worth it because in my mind, 95% of the world doesn't get up every day. And is are they able to be like, wow, I'm really excited. I'm still right. tickled to be a physician when I get up every day because I've wanted to be a physician since I was four years old, right? So I'm oh, still yeah. like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like people tell me their intimate stories, share their intimate life with me. I get to sit down and share people's lives with them as a profession, which if you really think about it, it's pretty awesome, right? And I'm That's a transplantologist, so I'm taking care of people who are, a lot of people are actively dying or yeah. looking to get their lives saved, right? So from that standpoint, I've always said, the day I wake up, and I don't love what I do anymore, I want to be able to stop doing it, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is a very intimate, special place. And, and I'm so glad that you guys have entered it and are, and are gonna continue to kind of flourish in this space, but it really, just remember those things. Like there are people out here laboring every day. There are people out, you know, doing things, you know, that don't per se bring them joy unless mm -hmm. they're just a joyful person. And this is one of those things that sometimes you can just feed off of. When you don't feel your best, you can like, you can get and actually receive joy from what you're doing. So I think that's a blessing. So have another, you know, familiar voice on the podcast. We have Katrina Ebony White. I'm just going to keep saying your full name. Katrina, just go ahead and just remind people who you are. Hi, everyone. I'm back again. I'm excited to be here this evening or morning or whenever you're listening to this. <laughs> 
Um, for those who don't know, I'm a PGY3 um, going into primary care in June when I graduate. I'm originally from Virginia, non-traditional route. I'm excited to be here. Tell everyone, keep the faith. You can do it no matter whatever you're in. Just wanted to, again, just thank Dr. Jonasine for coming on this podcast. Um, just a little background for everyone. So I met Dr. Jonasine on my GI interview trail, and we just clicked. It was an instant just, I was like, is this, am I looking at myself? Is this possible for me? You know, and I, I, I had done a lot of research on you before I interviewed you with you. I wasn't really sure what to expect. When I interviewed with you, you exceeded, you know, my expectations by far. And I just wanted to have the opportunity to say that to you on the platform of some sort. I know I sent into my thank you email, but it, like, our meeting has just remained a key point of my own career. Just let you know that. And so I'm so grateful that you took some time out of your very busy life schedule, but you're hanging out with us. So that's really good. You know, when I started this podcast, I wanted to share stories that said, hey, you know, I'm going through things in the hospital. I want to put a voice to some of the things that I'm going through. But I also thought like, it would be good to celebrate the successes that we also have in medicine and given an opportunity to learn from people that are trailblazing um, in medicine, in which Dr. Jonas Saint is a trailblazer. I'm super excited to have you here. And so, you know, you're our first guest on this Highlighting Excellence series. And again, super excited to have you here. One question that, you know, we had amongst ourselves for you is you just kind of tell us why medicine for you I know you kind of talked about how you chose it when you were four why medicine and why particularly I guess transplant hepatology you know it's interesting that you talk about stories because I'm coming to realize that like stories are so important to me right I I really um I struggled because nobody I mean my mother didn't go to college my father was originally uh, came from Jamaica and was trained as a geologist. They mined bauxite, which makes aluminum, which is a raw material that makes aluminum. And he did that in Jamaica. And he didn't really have a place when he came to the U.S. Right. So my dad was a teacher. Um, and I just didn't ever, you know, I always say it's a little bit of a struggle, I think, mainly for black children, because you don't see something on your multiple choice. Right. There's nobody in my family that's a physician other than me until this day. You know, mm -hmm. one of my cousins is a nurse practitioner, but I really kind of my pediatrician had a huge role in my life and it's you know i think it's awesome because i think we we do present as a face that sometimes young folks don't see right we and and my my pediatrician was not black she was a woman though and she was just so kind and compassionate and i was like this kind like the amount of joy i feel when i'm sick just seeing or comfort that i feel when i'm sick just seeing her face had an influence on me to this day i'm like dr cloth i remember her kaiser right? She had an impact on me. And I think that that was one of the first things. And, you know, the other thing that I knew I wanted to be in life was a mother, right? And I felt like the merging of those things, the giving, the story taking, the sharing, the caring, right, was a big thing. So I thought storytelling was really important. I thought caring for others, you know, was very, very important to me. Um, and like most people always say, I, I happen to be inclined at math and science, right? And I was blessed enough to live in Cleveland, um, I was one of the first people to go through school integration, right? Which is weird. Like I'm not that old, but, but this was kind of a time where school integration was happening. So I was bused away from my neighborhood. I never went to school with my, the neighborhood kids. 
45 minutes to the west side of Cleveland to go to school, right? Mm -hmm. In this kind of enrichment program. But I felt was so blessed by that because I always I was always confused because I was like, well, 95% of kids that I went to school with in a math and science magnet who tested within the 90th percentile in the country on the California achievement test were black. Like I had no inclination to like there was this whole world out here that thought there's not a whole bunch of smart black kids walking around. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I chose medicine because of the storytelling. I persisted in that and was able to kind of continue on because my father was a teacher and he always told me, you can continue to do this. You're bright, all of those things. Um, and it wasn't until my parents moved out of the predominantly black area that I lived on the east side of Cleveland to a suburb. And they tried to put me back in math and science that I kind of started to realize like, oh, I've been in kind of a little bit of a black bubble and mm. this is how it's really about to be, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to come up against this kind of suggestion that like, I'm not, I can't do these things, et cetera. So then I started, you know, I started, I think, to develop like real anxiety, real a sense of like, do I belong here? A little bit of imposter syndrome. And to have this kind of seeping in at such a young age is rough, right? So then I was like afraid to apply like to the best colleges in the country because I didn't, my school wasn't so great, even though it was mixed race, it wasn't so great. So, but I was like, who, what's the likelihood of this, you know, this little black kid from this random school in Ohio, like one of the worst school systems in the, you know, in the entire state getting into like a Johns Hopkins, right? Mm. So I'm like sliding my application under the door and all this other stuff. But it's just kind of like those people who believe in me, like, my guidance counselor, like, sure, you should apply here. I'm sure you'll get in. Like, you're a great student. So it's those people who breathe life into your dreams, right, mm-hmm. that you come into contact with that kind of, they look at you and sometimes somehow they see no limitation in what you can do. Those have been like the most impactful people in my life. So I've just persisted in this because I love people. I've been inclined and people have continued to kind of just be that wind behind me because it's so easy to give up at various steps, right? So, and I've loved it. I love being, like, I still love being a physician despite residency, despite fellowship, despite all those things. Residency is, it's almost over. That's all I'm going to say. But yeah, continue. Exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're kind of, you're seeing it. It's like the light, it's a dim light because I don't know that GI fellowship is that much better. So should I quit now? Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm going to GI fellowship. No, to persevere. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, and I'm sure we all kind of have some, you know, a story, but that's really it for me. The story is really it. And all those people that just continue to kind of push, push, push is I think how I got here primarily. How did you get to transplant hepatology though? Like what, you know, in your experience kind of pushed you to that field? Well, it's interesting because I thought when my college roommate, um, who's an oncologist in DC, my college roommate had, was diagnosed with UC when we were in college. So I was like, oh, I would love to do pediatric GI. This is what I still thought I liked children. So I thought, oh, I'm gonna do pediatric GI. And then I did pediatrics and I did not love pediatrics in, in, in resident, in, like in medical school. So then I was like, oh, I'm gonna do adult GI. And then I went into adult GI and I thought I was gonna do IV, I was gonna do inflammatory bowel disease as kind of a subspecialty. And then I just really realized I love sick people. Mm-hmm. Not only do I love a story, not only do I love longitudinal care, but I like the intensity of like illness. Um, and that's something very, very different, right? Than something that's kind of like, oh, chronic illness, typically not going to kill you or take your life. I realized that I like that. So it's kind of like, oh, do I want to do hard pulmonary critical care or do I want to stick with GI and liver? It was just something about it that I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is my thing. So um, 
I really love it because I also like being an internist. Like I like the fact that everything's kind of working mm-hmm. together. Um, and I like to think like a liver doctor is kind of like a doctor's doctor. You know, it's not a rheumatologist yeah. where you're kind of like, please save me. I really don't know what's going on, but it really is still <laughs> good medicine. Right. So mm-hmm. that's the way I kind of came to liver kind of circuitously, but that's the way I came to it. I mean, I have a similar love for the liver because I just love it. You know, I just, I was on nights over Christmas and I was just admitting all this liver patients and I was just like, just love. Somebody comes in HIV, I'm like the other, like, you know, resident take it. But if it's a liver person, like, just give it to me. I just love, I love it. Um, And similarly to, I came into residency thinking I wanted to do cardiology. I remember, and then there were all these people in my class that also wanted to do cardiology who could read EKGs with such clarity and I was still trying to identify the P waves and I was like maybe cardiology is not my thing and then as I just kind of rotated through our residency I realized you know I did our hepatology service here and I was just like I think I found my people I think I found my calling it was it was it was fun and I've just done it so many times I think they've actually caught me off they're like you can't do this anymore like you have to do other things in residency and you have to be a well-rounded internist so so I guess, you know, thank you so much for, you know, telling us your entire story summary, but to kind of pinpoint certain, you know, points in your life story, one of the things you told us about is that you were chief resident of Johns Hopkins, snaps to that, and, you know, I definitely did try and look on Google, how many Black chief residents have there been in internal medicine, how many Black female chief residents have there been in internal medicine I really couldn't find the data for that but I wanted you to kind of talk about your experience at Hopkins like being a chief resident how was that experience what are some of the changes that you were able to make or not just kind of give us a little bit more insight into that yeah I mean I think I think at that time I think the Hopkins like the Osler the typical Osler residency started in like the mid-1970s I want to say it was like Victor McCusick started in like 74. And at the beginning, you know, the, the the chief residents at Hopkins are very, very different than everywhere else in the country. Because as you know, like a lot of places, chiefs are like, you have an administrative chief, you have an education chief, they do six weeks of service. It may be at the main hospital, it may be at the VA. Mm-hmm. The Hopkins chiefs are attendings for 48 weeks. They take their six weeks of vacation. They are on service every other week of the year, right? Because hospitals, Johns Hopkins doesn't really have a huge hospitalist service. So the chief resident, the four chief residents at Hopkins take care of pretty much most of the medicine admissions over that the course of that year. It's thought that Hopkins, the Hopkins chief resident sees more people in that year than any other position in the United States, essentially, because there are just so many patients. You have a maximum 30 on your team and you're rounding on that for 48 weeks out of the year, which most people don't, you know, like even the busiest hospitalist, right, doesn't round for 48 weeks in a year. They get seven days on, seven days off. So from that standpoint, is pretty intense. One of the best years of my life, though, because I'm a pretty intense person to begin with, and I just like to learn. And I think, mm-hmm. I learn, and I know that I learn by doing, right? So, I think it was a great, it was a great year for me. I think when I was a chief resident, I had only been the fourth black chief resident in the entire history of the program, and that would have been in 2009. So the program would have already been running for what is that? 41 years. Um, and I, I would have been the fourth black person to do it. I think since then, obviously, since then, they're mm-hmm. like, they've been some of my medical students have been black medical students, and they've gone on to be chief racing. So I know there have been mm-hmm. other black folks to do it after me. Um, in regards to changes, it was just an re- intense time. We I was a chief, re- I came to residency at the time where the 80 hour work week was starting. 
And it was a huge shift, right? Because Hopkins had had all, you know, has is historically very intense. And I think it was just kind of trying to get used to squeezing what we do into that, into all of the rules, right? The historic program into all the rules, but we managed to do that. The one thing that I can say is just advocacy, right? Mm-hmm. One thing that I've constantly said about institutions is that to me, the differentiation between a good institution and a great institution is that it attributes the failures, a great institution attributes the failures of the great people that it recruits to itself, not to the individual. Mm. If you're great and I say, come here for for fellowship, and for some reason you're just, you're not surviving, then I say, well, what is institutionally wrong with us that somebody this brilliant, this bright, this dynamic, this charismatic can't survive the system, right? Mm. I you've come this far, there, there has to be something wrong with the system. And I think looking at that is important because I have seen people come and struggle. And I said, if we are the greatest residency training program in the country, then we should be able to skim the cream off and even the weakest person of us, right, should be strong. Mm. And I think we have to look at those things. Those things, you know, they happen, right? We look and we say, okay, why is this person struggling? And sometimes it's a minority what are we what are we doing what is what's wrong with the system what's wrong with the institution what's wrong with that not what's wrong with the person and i think when you start to uncover this you start to realize some of us have more responsibility than others some people have other stressors than others and when you don't have to worry about those things right when i have people that i go to med school with saying their unborn children have trust funds already that's a different place to be right than talking about paying off Than talking about paying off your loans, right? It's a very, very different place to be. And I just think that when we see people struggling, we should start to exactly get back to what we talk about, a story. What's mm. going on? Why don't we ask? We're human beings. Yeah. We don't work at Target. We don't work at Walmart. No disrespect. But the we're dealing in human capital. It's not just, an, it's not transactional. What we do is not transactional. It's about human experience and relationships. So we have to get into that. And I think that's what we don't do. So I I hope to believe that while I was there, people were being looked after, right? And we were seeing people for who they were. And if people were struggling, some people, most people were just fine. Mm -hmm. But if there was someone struggling that we ask about people's story, whether they be brown, black, or otherwise, right? we ask about the story and what else might be feeding into that. So that's, I think that's my, my biggest contribution other than just being a black chief resident and being like, you can do this y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> do it. I'm here. I made it. See all of this. <laughs> and the other thing, let me just point out one thing. I did not think I was a great, I was not a great intern. I will just flat out say like, I, you know, I came from Yale, which was, almost diametrically like it's like all the way on the other side like kumbaya learn what you want take your time you know it's like no great you know first medical school to not have any grades in the country when other places weren't doing it when people thought pass fail was crazy right I had a struggle right I had to learn a system I was you know walking around thinking I would remember what to do didn't have my little checkbox system down mm-hmm. I learned and I learned quickly and it's just kind of like you can still redeem yourself like I thought you know but by the end of the intern year I was like oh, okay I think think I'm good I think mm-hmm. I this. but I think I struggled there for the first three four months where I was like I don't know I might have chosen the wrong program for myself but then 
it kicked up. I was like, okay, I see, I see it now for what it is. Thank you for sharing that tidbit because it is so important to those. I, Cause I felt kind of the same way. My first bit of intern year was a, a bit of a struggle coming from a community-based hospital to a major academic center, but how you start does not determine your end or where you go next. And I think that is so important for you to say that for the people in the back who have not heard. Right. Okay. Not how you start does not determine how you end or where you will go next. It's just not. And so thank you for sharing that. Cause yeah, I think everybody thinks that everybody just flies through. <laughs> really? Right. Exactly. And that's what we need to, that's what we need to be sharing y'all. That Like that's the real, like the real is like, sharing the struggle because that's when people get encouraged like oh, okay i may be i may feel like i'm just treading water now but there's greater things for me this this water in fact is going to look shallow to me while after i'm in it for a while right yeah. so i just think we're not growing up in the language i talked to one of my friends and he said his two twin sons were casting a teddy bear like think about being eight and nine and already talking about catheterization of the heart right when you start there, I'm like, I didn't know anything about catheterization. You know, yeah. think about where you'll be when you're 20 something, 25 and doing residency. You will already know the lexicon. You already know the vocab. You already know how to, you know, carry yourself. You already know the nuances of that environment. It's like you were born there, right? Where some of us are just not, that's not it. So I just want people who have struggled to share so people know exactly what Katrina said. Like you, you won't end there. Right. In your struggle. I still even think of my very first day as an intern. Um, and I've shared this before. I didn't start residency with the rest of my class for work authorization reasons. And my first day, I lost my pager. I followed my resident into the bathroom. I'd never done that as a resident. I mean, I was as a medical student. It was just it was horrible. You know, in the first three months of residency, I was struggling. And, you know, as residency is coming to a close, again, you can see the slide at the end of the tunnel. I've done a whole lot of self-reflection. You know, Adesola, July 2019 is very different from Adesola, now February 2022. You know, in multiple regards, like, I now know things, which <laughs> I didn't know anything back then. I knew nothing, okay? I talk about this P waves, like, I can't see them now, but, like, I couldn't see them back then. Um, and then... I think for me to just self-reflection, my confidence and my program director and I are talking about this too, has just changed. I think, you know, having been through the baptism of fire that is residency, especially intern year, you go through so many emotions. You're like, you know, can I do this? Can I not do this? And then suddenly it's like July 1st, the following year, and like, I survived, you know, and now you're teaching somebody else and you're like, wow, I've learned. And then with time, you find what you want to do and, you know, I, I I have a lot of compassion towards like interns now or even medical students. I'm just like, look, you might look feel like you're struggling now, but you're gonna get better too. So that's my own. If Adasol can make it, guys, I promise. If I could pass step, if I can make it, everybody can. And it's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. You know, one thing that I also wanted to talk about too, um, while we're in the subject of race. Um, so I looked at the breakdown of the physician population, AAMC has some data from 2018. It says that 5% of the physician population currently identifies as Black as of 2018. I'm hopeful that that number has increased, whatever it is now. How, how does being part of that 5% 
plus or minus like impact you on a day-to-day basis does it even impact you um is it a weight on your shoulders do you feel like you said something when you were talking about being like a chief resident like you know telling other black people that you can be that like do you carry that weight on your shoulders i guess just this is just my roundabout way of saying how does being in such a small subset um of the physician population impact your day-to-day work you know, there is a, there is an effect, you know, we all, we're all getting taxed, right? And I think on a daily basis, some more than others, right? There are days where I kind of am like in my office and it's like, it's not me today, but it, you know, it go, it, it affects everything. I mean, mm-hmm. you, I even had to think about it that in moving to Southwest Pennsylvania, right? I was like, this is not the most diverse, you know, I, I was in Baltimore before now, right? I could just throw a dart and hit a black person, right? And Hopkins <laughs> is a very different place. We take care of a lot of black folks at Hopkins, right? So the patient population here is very, very different, right? So I have to say, you know, how is this population going to look at me differently? And right, sometimes you do see it. If people haven't researched you before they come to the visit, you can kind of see like, you know, and they might say, you know, how we get it like, oh, you know, I was just shocked because you look so young or, you know, you know, that's just, you're shocked yeah. you're black. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So we have to be, you know, and that's something you take that on. Right. I can tell that story and that story has happened to all of us. Right. And people are going to kind of say, oh, they were shocked for another reason. But it's just it really is just that. The other thing is, I do feel like I like to amp up the excellence because I am a representative. I could walk through these halls and not see people. This is a humongous hospital. Right. I could walk through these halls and not see another face for a while, you know, for a while, if I'm getting on my trajectories, going to my meetings, um, I'm just not surrounded in the same way that I might be in in other environments. And I think that that's a real thing. And I think when you, um, when that's it, when you're in clinic, when you present in clinic, when you're the physician, when you're, you know, you have a role in the dean's office, when you're vice chair, you do feel a certain burden, right, to make sure that you're on point, because you do feel as though, and it's real for us, that your mistakes or your slips or your whatever won't be seen as that, right? Right. Won't be seen as something else. They'll be judged as something else. I was talking to somebody and say, oh, you know, talking about recruitment. And they're like, well, what if, you know, what comes up that we're having a diversity talk and something came up about being lazy. And it comes back to this idea, like if someone makes it through residency and they're in this very super subspecialized fellowship, why would the first thing you default to if somebody struggling is laziness, right? Mm -hmm. Like to me, and I just think that that's, that's kind of where we fall off. I'm just trying to walk in this life to convince people. And I say this in talks that I give, I am your mother. I'm your sister. I am like, I'm that person. I was that, you know, if you take care of children, I'm the little six-year-old that you're taking care of in some of the historically black neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. You don't know who that child is going to be. So just make sure that you're giving them every chance in the world to get to wherever they're going. Mm -hmm. And you see it as such. I'm not an other. I'm not, oh, oh, but that's Nadia. No, no. Nadia is that same black kid from Cleveland. Like, Mm -hmm. and that kid that you're looking at right now might be a physician 25 years from now. But if you don't do right by that person, right, if you're not making sure that you're doing your due diligence, then what have we lost, right? Mm. So I just want to be clear. And I tell this story all the time because I feel like this person has been very impactful. One of my friends is Westmore. I don't know if you guys know Westmore, but he's running for the governor of Maryland. And he wrote the book, The Other Westmore. And I think this idea that he says the tragedy is that the Westmore that's incarcerated for probably life, right, for I think murder, murdering a police officer, he's like, the tragedy is that, you know, his story could be mine, 
right? Mm-hmm. He said the first time I felt handcuffs on my wrist was at age 11. He went to military school. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He's running for the governor of Maryland, right? I mean, think about how we limit people's potential just by what we see. Mm-hmm. And we're still doing that. So when, when that is seen and taking that just how it is that people are just going to see what they see, I do feel a weight of making sure I present in a certain way and making sure that it is what, you know, that it's seen as excellent, right? That my output is excellent. Maybe I double down and I work twice as hard, but I do feel that, of course, of course, because I don't want you and Katrina to walk into a room behind me under any dim light. Mm -hmm. I I want the lights to be fully on and shining on your excellence. I don't want to have dim that room before you walk in behind me. Right. So, yeah, that's a burden. Do, do our do our colleagues have that burden? I'm not so sure about that. I think that they're you know, I don't I'm not so sure about that. So I don't know. How do you guys feel when you I mean, you're you're there. You you kind of have to you're people's resident. You're going to be people's fellow. You have to you know, you're people's position. You know, you're leading a team. How do you feel about that on the daily? I was going to say the double tax is real. The burden, the weight is real. And I, I'm like you, I don't ever want to walk through the door and have it shut because I didn't do my best. Um, and so like you, everything from how I physically present my actual like wardrobe to how I do my work, to how I answer the phone, to how I talk to everyone. And I try to do that with excellent and just mutual respect because that's just who I am. But I totally agree with you that that weight is there. And I never want to be the one that closed the door for anybody else not reaching their dreams or be the barrier or be the one, oh, see, we can't have them because of how she did it, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're right. I always live in kind of, I don't want to say fear, but um, just uh, it's always this nagging thought that I never want to be the obstacle to another brother or sister, you know? success. I never want to be the reason why they couldn't get through because I came and I blew it up. (laughs) That's it. We would, because that's just not our spirit. And that's not how we do things, but you never want to be the cause for them saying, Oh, we can't have them here because of that resident or, you know, that attendant. Yeah. I echo everything you both have said. Um, I feel like my journey in medicine has evolved And I always say, I didn't grow up here. And I feel like a lot of things that I have learned have come with time. I grew up in a country where everyone looked like me. And so I I have to admit that, you know, I walk in spaces with sometimes not as much levity, like seriousness of the situation, because I've just been always used to people looking like me. As I've trained in medicine, um, I was an engineer, I realized that spaces just didn't look like me and you know as a medical student I don't think I was as intentional as I am now in trying to one create a voice or create a platform that gives people a voice to say what they are feeling as a resident I really try to lead with kindness and support you know regardless of who people look like what people look like but especially for my black brothers and sisters you know they know I'm like let's talk how can we help you how can I you know how can I elevate you how can I make you feel supported um one of the things that we're actually doing at Vanderbilt um now is you know we're talking about how to enhance like the experience for minority house staff and I think this is again leading from my experience here how can I leave this residency program better for other people that also look like me so I think I'm more cognizant of that weight now I want to make the space as 
equal for all as possible they understand you know that they're just certain like microaggressions that other people are just never going to experience you know the other day i was on consult service and someone asked me like where are you from i said i'm from nigeria and he's like wow your english is really good and i was just like do you not know that we speak english in nigeria like i didn't say that to him but it like stuck with me and just nobody on my team said anything you know and so like that annoys me then i go to a different patient you know another day and they say something you know and i can only imagine what other people like me are experiencing on a day-to-day basis on the interview trail someone asked me like you know how do you handle stress which i always thought was a very interesting question because medicine is very stressful you know but i tell them a story about this patient i took here in the va that had a confederate flag tattoo and the stress that that causes me to and you know i guess long answer to question that you posed back you know i understand the unique struggles that people that look like us experience and it's a personal you know goal of mine to always leave every situation where other people that look like me feel more comfortable and just more at home in those spaces and that's why i'll end my speech (laughs) that's why you should have come to pittsburgh for gi because i was gonna make you feel real comfortable Well, I'm not holding that against you. You can come here for you can come here to be a faculty recruit member. Recruit me, recruit me. <laughs> oh, I will, I will. I'll be right here. You'll see me. Three years is gonna fly by. And I don't want to hear any excuses that time around. Oh, Doctor I just decide no. <laughs> <laughs> Similarly, a similar question, but now looking at like our patient population, and Katrina and I have talked about this um, a lot through our residency, and we think about who's going to inherit our patient panel moving forward. Um, a lot of patients come to our clinic because they see somebody that looks like them. They've never had a black doctor, and like, oh my god, I have a black female doctor. They bring their family and have mother daughters that I, you know, and now I'm just like, who's going to break it to them? Like, I'm going to do. You know, I'm telling them six months in advance, like, you know, like, hey, I'm talking to chiefs. Let's see if we can get another black female in here. Um, but there is an impact that you also have for your black, you know, patients. Again, similar question. How does it feel to care for, you know, a population that's just been historically disenfranchised? And I guess a sub question there is now that you're you're in transplant hepatology there's all this buzz now about, you know, the inequities, like health disparities with transplant allocation, listing, and those sort of things. Can you t- kind of talk about how you advocate for your patients, you know, on a day-to-day basis within the hepatology field? So I think, you know, I think the biggest thing, and I think this is even beyond race, right, is that you're having a conversation, sometimes socioeconomic, sometimes otherwise, is that you have a conversation, you know, I have a real talk with my patients. My patients know, like my patients know me, like we get to know each other, right? I think sharing is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just about me interviewing the patient, but them knowing, you know, they come in, they're like, how are your kids doing? All this other stuff. And we share. Um, but we also have real talk, which is mm-hmm. I need to understand what's going on here and what are the obstructions? Because there is a, there is a, I don't even want to say a hidden curriculum, but there, there's going to come a time where you may need a transplant and people are going to go into a room and these behaviors or perceived behaviors are going to maybe something that keep you from this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I can remember, and I worried, I can tell you guys, and I can share this with you all, I worried so much about like the poor rural West Virginia population, not accepting, like I would be seeing like, you know, I have my own judgments, right? Because I didn't grow up in rural America, right? But the first year I was here, one of my patients I was close to was actually a white female from rural West Virginia. And mm-hmm. she was she was poor. I mean, her husband was essentially sleeping in his car during her transplant evaluation. And that was uncovered. And they were about to not list her. And in my mind, what actually happened was a lack of due diligence. They had West Virginia Medicaid. West Virginia Medicaid will reimburse you for gas to travel. They will pay for your lodging. They will do all of these things. Actually, one of the poorest states in the union, but they have some really great Medicaid, right, reimbursement. And I just felt like at the time, you know, no, not hating and not throwing any shade on anybody, but I just felt like the social worker did not do their due diligence. And I was like, this is a lack of due diligence. And we cannot be not transplanting somebody in the United States because of this, because of the lack of due diligence. It's not mm. just for uninsured, it's that you just don't know and you haven't told them what they're able to do with what they have. And something happened, and I can do, again share this, that it got all the way up to the CEO's office, this issue about this patient, not because I brought it to them, because I, t- I engaged somebody in the community somehow, something else got heard. But I, you know, somebody very high up in administration was like, why did I just get a call from the CEO of UPMC talking about we're not transplanting poor people? Now, it wasn't me that leaked that information outside of mm-hmm. anything. But what I could say was, I did not start that conversation with the CEO's office, but I am dismayed that we're in this situation. And if I were to get fired today, and I said this on an email, I would be able to walk through the front door mm-hmm. with my head held up very mm-hmm. high because this mm-hmm. is exactly why I do what I do every day. Hmm. I would not feel any sense of loss if you all fired me because this is why I'm doing this. Hmm. So I can take people, I mean, we're talking about life and death. We're not talking about something trivial, right? I'm the type of guy, I get on the phone and I will call Medicaid myself for a transplant authorization number when I feel like people are playing around. Like someone can be alive today and die tomorrow. Hmm. In my mind, People are my family. Like once I start taking care of you, I'm like ride or die. Like I'm your girl. (laughs) I will be in there. Like I will be, I, and you, and, and the nurses at UPMC ever, they will tell you Dr. J doesn't play. Like when it's her patient, I mean, like, why don't we have a number? Why are we not doing this? Because if it's my child, if it's my mother, if it's my brother, my sister, best believe I want I want to be the person where people are like, I want that person to be my doctor because I know they're going to advocate because I want to see those people on my, on my parents' team, yeah. on my sister's team, on my team, on my child's team. So I'm, I can be, I can be unrelenting when it comes to stuff like this. Like if you want to see me upset, start, you know, lollygagging, looking lazy, looking like you're not spirited and, and looking like you don't remember that you're in the life-saving business. Mm-hmm. Like, there are many openings, many places where the transaction is not human life. If you don't want to be about it, you should get to those places. But here in the hospital, we're about human life. So I'm going to need you to get it. I'm going to need you to be out here with some passion and a little bit of fire in your belly and look like you know. For me, it goes beyond race. It just goes beyond what do I... I'm not going to, I know my, I remember my program director told me something that has stuck with me my entire, ever since he said it, you are not going to be the best doctor you can be every day. You may not sign all your epic notes. You may not have this. You may, you may not go back to the patient's bedside and have that conversation you wanted to because you're tired and you go home. 
But on the days when the fire is hot, I want to be the best doctor I can be. And yeah. that's what I'm sometimes getting in people's behind. Like, I'm going to need y'all to get to life saving. Like, get it. Um, so, and for me, that just goes beyond race. But I do, you know, I, I take my Black folks, my Black patients, and I'm like, this is what other people aren't going to tell you. I need you to know today so you don't come back and say, my doctor never told me because I'm your doctor and I don't want to be lied on. And I'm going to document it in the note that I was very clear with you that I need you to do this one, two, and three. Mm. Do those one, two, and three. You got me. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to be a big mouth. I'm going to be the aggressor that I know I can be because to me, you're important. When you don't do those things, I don't, I can't, you know what I'm saying? Because I have to advocate for the next person. I am an advocate, right? Mm. So I can't use my advocacy all willy nilly, but if you do what you're supposed to do, I'm, I'm game. I'm going to be out there. And like I said, if I have to lose my job advocating, I would be very, I would feel honored to do so when I know I've done the right thing. I just want to sit on that because that was so good. (laughs) So good. Like, <laughs> I'm just like it's saturated right now. <laughs> but I have a follow up question because I'm one of the co leaders on our social medicine um, committee in our residency, and I tell uh, my co residents it's so important to know how your uh, patients are living. Like, tell me how you live it. Like, what's mm-hmm. your social context? And just like follow up with that is just advocacy. Like, how do you we get some as people transition out of residency into the kind of the attending role? How do we get them to turn that light on? Because a lot of them are very like differential to social work and case management and they have their role, but you are the leader of the team and you have to say, okay, look, this is what's going to happen. And so some of them, I sometimes feel like it's my job to do the medicine, but I don't get into all that social work stuff. You know, Uh I hear that sometimes I'm like, but this is how the patient's living. Their social contact just matters just as much as their blood pressure or their sodium level or their liver enzymes (laughs) or their lattes, you know? And so I think sometimes people forget to look at the patient holistically. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's ill-intended or, you know, malicious in any way. I just think sometimes they're overwhelmed. But as the attending, you are the leading of the team. And I want, you know, and I know most attendees do this, but I just know if you didn't have any tips for, like, people as they transition out into attending or fellowship or wherever they go next, just how do they think about social context just as much as they think about all the clinical parameters and bio markers. Mm-hmm. I think Katrina, that's a powerful question. So my sister was one of the most powerful and most influential people in my life. And she said to me a while ago, and I think that this is pertinent to many things in life. It's like a life thing. It's not a medicine thing. And when I was young, my answer was wrong. She said, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And I think that's where we're lost Hmm. because I can write all the scripts I want. You can write the metoprolol, you can write the aspirin, you can write the Plavix. Mm -hmm. But if you're not being effective, you haven't moved the needle. You haven't done anything for healing. So Hmm. before I do all of that, I kind of have to understand the context, right? Exactly what you're talking about before I, because why wouldn't you take this medication, right? Somebody might say, look, I'm struggling just to get food, even though you're saying, oh, this is only going to cost me a $5 copay. If I can spend that on two or five days of ramen noodles, I may not get this medication. So it's starting to understand that. And the question is, are we in the healing business? Are we in the prescription writing business? I'm in the healing business. So Mm. I want to know before my patient leaves, if there's going to be a reason why I'm not effective. I already know I can be right. I can, I know how to treat blood pressure. I know how to treat ascites. I know how to treat all of those things. But to heal, mm. to be a healer, 
you have to know how to be effective, not mm -hmm. right. Right is just some theoretical thing in the sky. You can do that and never touch a patient. You can answer all the questions on the board. You can be right. But are you a healer? Are you going to be effective in giving care? And I think mm. if, 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 if you decide that you're just, if you're a prescription writer, I can't convince you to be otherwise. Mm. You're a prescription writer. And you can say, okay, well, I want to be somewhere. I want to practice somewhere where people just do whatever I say. But if you're a healer, if you're in the healing business, I think understanding the context in which you treat people is vitally important. And we just have to ask ourselves what game we're in. I have Good. no words. <laughs> I'm not even church. <laughs> so, again, just thrilled to, you know, hear your experience, like learn from you and just, I know that I'm not living this podcast unchanged, um, even though I didn't go to Pittsburgh. Um, but, you know, I guess just closing question um, for you. As you reflect on your journey, you know, as the little kid in, you know, Cleveland that was getting bussed around to a different school to now as a, you know, hepatologist at, you know, the University of Pittsburgh, if you could go back and give, let's say, your 18-year-old self an advice or you want to give the intern self an advice, what would you tell yourself, um, you know, and why? Mm, that's a hard one. You know, I'm not a... You know, you're not, you're not getting me at a, I don't typically, uh, you know, not have words. I mean, the one thing for me um, that has a, has had a great impact on my life has been loss. Mm -hmm. So I have, um, I have a wonderful family. I have a wonderful husband. I have two wonderful children um, and my family is wonderful. But during, um, during my fellowship, I lost my first son at 27 weeks, right? We talk about maternal fetal health and women and how mm -hmm. socioeconomics and education is not protection, right? Mm -hmm. um, for unknown reasons, right? And, um, oh and in 2018, I lost my sister to metastatic breast cancer, right? And we talk mm -hmm. about how it's kind of like, you know, we, we kind of get hit from all sides. And there's some things we just, we don't get back, right? And I, the, the one piece of advice I've constantly been giving people is like, if you want to do something for a year, do it. A year's going to buy, go by so quickly, all of this other stuff. Like, don't don't hesitate, right? Katrina talked about having this, you know, non-traditional course, right? But stay on your path. You know, if it's an extra year, year here, two extra years there, don't worry about those things because those things are going to go by so quickly and it's really, really important. But also what you don't get back, right? Hmm is the time of self-care, the time of spending, you know, when you say yes to something, you are by default saying no to something else. There's only 24 hours in a day, right? Mm -hmm. So just realizing, you know, we get back to it, like nothing's guaranteed, right? Um, just hold on to those things. Katrina's talking about going back, you know, to be near family, thinking about the people that you love and constantly working that into your everyday, not making it as something that you're going to get to. Oh, when I'm done with residency, I'm going to spend way more time with my family. Oh, when I'm do done with this, I'm going to do this, right? These things are not a destination. Life is a journey. You need to be working these things in. I can't get that time that I would love back with my sister, right? Just laying in the bed with her. Like, mm -hmm. and I, you know, you can never go home enough weekends to satisfy once you've lost. But 
be certain that in those ways and the things that are most important to you in love, in relationship, in your family, that you try to live without a significant amount of regret, mm. right? That you, that you really do remember that you're a human being, that you're cultivating your soul through relationship and story. And the people who are closest to you are just going to be the people who are, you know, so mm-hmm. just constantly make sure you're feeding into that because you don't, you don't get those times back. You don't, um, and loss has helped me to understand, you know, so sometimes I say, yeah, I, I'm saying no to having a clean epic inbox to make sure that I go skiing with my kids or that mm-hmm. I do this with my husband or spend this time, right? Because you don't get it back. Nothing's guaranteed. And I just want you all to make sure that you're taking care of yourself because though there's light at the end of the tunnel, you gonna be chasing that light for the rest. You know, in this life of medicine, you're gonna be chasing that light forever. I just want you all to make sure to a certain extent you're living in that light, not trying mm-hmm. to constantly get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've like, I've, I've had loss in my life. And by the way, thank you so much for, you know, sharing that. And I'm really, really sorry about those losses in your life. I'm sure they're incredibly hard. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been very open, you know, I lost my mom when I was 12. I lost my dad when I was just about to start second year of medical school. And I think my reaction to life at that point was just go, 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 you know, and it wasn't until residency, and this is me being very honest with your, with everyone here, I just realized that I chased this dream and I just completely abandoned like my own personal life. And isn't it, as of right now, there's always this constant effort that I'm trying to make to make sure that I'm making myself happy outside of the workplace. You know, I think we are called to, you know, be physicians. I love what I do. I really do. Even those friends that ask me, hey, shall I go into medicine? And I'm like, are you really sure? I tell them, I tell you these things, but I love what I do. I cannot see myself doing something else. However, you know, I do want to echo that, you know, we spend so much of our time training that it makes a lot of change and difference when you prioritize things that make you happy outside of the workplace because, I've had to learn it the hard way. And then that's just, we're not going to be happy if your personal life is just lacking basically. And I've just learned to pour more into that. Yeah. I agree. I was telling Ada Solo before we started the podcast that I was just going to ask you how, because you know, you have this elusive question that once you become an attending or once you finish your training, you can find a way to quote unquote achieve this work life balance, or you can do the self care Sundays and the, you know, medi pedis and the massages. But, <laughs> but I do appreciate that you have to be doing all that stuff along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Ada Solo, I just, it became all encompassing. And I just felt like that for a while there, I know I wasn't taking care of myself. Like I wasn't giving myself my proper rest, proper nutrition and all these things. Cause you just get so overwhelmed and you want to take care of your patients. But you know, this is cliche, but it's so true. You can't pour into anybody else. If you are not pouring into yourself, you just cannot do okay. it. Okay. You cannot run on empty. Right. And you know, the old people be saying that. <laughs> care of my dog sir your dog is still going to be alive and you are not going to be here who's going to take care of your dog when you're gone 
Mm -hmm. Like that's what we're talking about. Real talk. Right. So I say the same thing about the community. You talked about it, Katrina, and going out in the community. It's like you can't withdraw from a bank you haven't deposited in. Like we just know some basic math. (laughs) Don't try to go to the ATM when you haven't made any deposit. They are not going to give you anything. Right. So that's the, like exactly what your grandmother said. You can't if you can't, you can't pour into anybody else. If your jar is empty, what are you going to what are you going to pour into anybody else? So you're right. So just do those things. The other thing that I'll say, one of the best piece of advice, and I know I, I know you guys probably want to go soon, is that outsource. I know we live in a life and so many of us have those black mothers and fathers who just made it look so seamless. They were doing everything. They were working and they were at your basketball games and they were here and they were there. You know, my mother just seemed like she was just omnipresent. Every time I turned around, she was there, but she was still working a full-time job. You're not her. You have a career. You don't have a job. You don't get to, you don't get to log out, you know, or whatever, swipe your card at five and leave. Mm-hmm. You don't have anything left, right? So it's okay to outsource things. I struggled with that. But guess what? I don't love to do laundry. I know how to do it. I can put anything on a cold cycle. I can fold some clothes, including, you know, the fitted sheets. But I don't, what am I trying to prove to anybody? If I can get somebody to do that in time that's less valuable than my hourly wage, then maybe I should do that. I don't mm-hmm. have to spend eight hours on a Saturday doing laundry. And I used to, right? So just be kind to yourself. Mm. Give yourself some grace and just say, what am I trying to prove and to whom, right? Like my husband's looking at me like, I don't care if you do the laundry or somebody else does the laundry. It's going to be done and it ain't going to be me. So you, you don't need to understand what you need, right? So just saying that to say, be kind. Most successful women that have a career have told me, outsource the things you don't love to do. Mm. And you can't outsource everything, right? You got to be there with your children. Your partner needs attention, right? There are certain things that you, you know, you can't outsource your epic in basket. You can't outsource oh, your patient. Oh. I wish I could outsource my epic in basket. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't do all of those things, but the stuff that you can do it because we already know you can wash. We already know you can clean house. All those things that your mama taught you to do because you wouldn't otherwise be a respectable woman. We know you can do them. You're respectable. You're great. But now you got to take care of yourself. So, so it's just a trade-off. Remember, every time you say yes to something, you say no to something else. So I can be here with y'all because somebody else is doing laundry. I <laughs> thank that person in advance. <laughs> you know, I do want to thank you for taking out so much time to chat with us and just leave us with such salient points, pieces of advice. I always like to, you know, wrap up the podcast with something fun and light. Um, and so my question is, assume COVID is not a thing. It did never existed. Okay. You're seeing everybody's faces. There are no masks. Okay. Your bank account has all the money for you to go somewhere. Where are you going and why? French well, I can go Bora Bora, Bora Bora, private jet, you know, maybe four other couples, no okay. kids, no kids. And you know, the little, you know, the the huts that are like out in the water like you go up the walkway yes yeah that's that's french polynesia that's where i'm going that's where i'm going so i uh, hope my husband hears this recording <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> katrina you were gonna say where you where are you going yeah where are you going katrina i'm going to brazil 
beautiful people, beautiful beaches, lots of culture, lots of melanin, great music, handsome men. I am single. I mean, I feel like my answer is going to be so lame compared to everybody. I was going to go to Australia. Like, I don't know. I've been obsessed with Australia for like years. I remember having this book when I was like 11 and you just had the opera house on it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to go to Australia. So I would go to Australia, but maybe I'll come on your trips with you guys too. Like, you know, maybe I'll just go on three trips. You know, yes. Um, I'm also going to Brazil with, um, definitely going to Brazil with you, Katrina. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Now, to go with Dr. Jonas, we got to be booed up. So, yeah, 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 no, yeah. I know. Yeah. Okay, you can't, yeah. It's, it's hard you you got to leave the single people at home once you get married because you're like, okay, this is a conflict of interest. <laughs> I can't have you good looking women just walking around with my married friend's husband. No, that don't work. I love right. y'all, though. When we come back, we'll do one.